Hey, it's Jordan. Delighted to be joined by Dr. Jill Stein, uh, who's been in the news the last few days. Uh, Green Party candidate for president in 2016, um, and obviously longtime uh, peace advocate, um, anti-war activist, uh, and political uh, influencer. Um, I, I don't need to kind of repeat what Hillary Clinton said. Everybody knows uh, what she's been saying. Uh, she seems to be, uh, I guess, trying to deflect off of some other things in the news about her and her campaign, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, by going after Tulsi Gabbard and then speaking as a fact, uh, calling you a, a, a quote-unquote Russian asset. Uh, I'll just ask you straight to the point. Uh, when you initially heard that, uh, what was your reaction? Um, it was so preposterous. You know, she said, I'm, I'm a Russian asset, totally, totally. And that I may be blocking uh, Tulsi's access to the Green nomination. It's like ignorant and arrogant. I'm not running, you know. This is all over the media. Um, I should say this is, you know, it's it's public information, and it can readily be found by simple googling. I mean, it's as if Hillary's team didn't Google the obvious here. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, in a way, I'm really glad that this is being uncovered, you know, because this is a window into, it's really the tip of the iceberg in a very sick era of McCarthyism and uh, political repression, um, uh, you know, targeting, vilifying uh, political opponents and peace advocates, censoring the press, and warmongering. Those three things go together. Those three things are very dangerous. They really characterize our era. And it's been very hard to have a real discussion about them. And when I saw Hillary was, you know, had sort of lifted the curtain on this, you know, elephant in the room, I thought, wow, this is really great. Now we get to actually discuss this instead of having it sort of eat away at the heart of America in so many ways, you know, from our economy to our elections to this pervasive corruption um, of foreign policy and decision making. It so badly begs to be brought out, you know, my fingers are crossed that we can continue having this discussion. And I've been really surprised that, you know, there's the usual um, circling the wagons around the Democratic Party machine and around Hillary and around the usual bashing against uh, Tulsi Gabbard and myself and the Green Party. That's been, you know, maybe it's new for Tulsi, but it's not new for me. This uh, campaign really began against me. And it's funny, there's sort of a parallel. Tulsi's now going through what I went through, starting with my nomination. My visit to Russia, which was this, you know, which which was really the springboard for the biggest smear campaign against me that I was a Russian asset or a spy or, you know, a tool uh, colluding with the Kremlin, um, you know, or or an ignorant Putin puppet. You know, all that really began when I got the nomination. I had visited um, Moscow in 2015 as part of a media conference that was held by RT. And this was a legitimate conference attended by uh, media from all over the world, including the BBC, the largest uh, TV networks in India, um, you know, just uh, uh, China TV and so on, you know, a whole variety of legitimate 
uh, press was there, and I really wanted them to hear that there was another view, especially about the war, about the uh, bombing campaign that Russia had just begun at that time in Syria, which I was calling for a ceasefire and a peace offensive in the Middle East. And my, my message actually at the time was, you know, we know this uh, strategy well. We've been doing this in the United States here. You know, this has been our policy towards the Middle East. It's awful for Russia to be now following in our footsteps. This is a quagmire and it's, it's exploding. We need to ramp this down. You know, that conversation badly needed to happen. That's why I was there, along with promoting a global Green New Deal and a nuclear weapons ban. So, so if you were speaking out at the time against Russia bombing Syria, that would make you one pretty shoddy asset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole thing was preposterous. But the point I was making was that this happened back in December of 2015, and it was all public. I was putting out newsletters and press releases about it. I was publicly raising money for it in order to do the trip. It was part of also a visit to Paris and the climate summit. I met with Jeremy Corbyn. I met with the assistant uh, climate negotiator for China. I met with many public figures. I did not meet with Putin. You know, I went to a conference in Moscow in order to get the message. Putin happened to sit at the head table briefly before he gave a speech in Russian, but he wasn't there to talk to anybody. I had hoped to talk to him. I wasn't able to talk to him. Um, there was no translator. The English speakers spoke English to each other. The Russians at the table all spoke Russian to each other. There was no contact there. It, the whole thing was preposterous and contrary to public facts. Uh, and then, you know, I was accused basically in the Steele report, which was the first place I saw it, the now highly discredited Steele report. But, you know, I saw this bold-faced lie in the Steele report that Russia had sponsored my trip and that therefore, you know, I was on the take from Kremlin and was in this uh, very compromised relationship with them and sort of promoting their message. And that was like false. I had the receipts to prove it. My fundraising in order to make the trip had been perfectly public. So, you know, it was a big smear. It was clearly a political thing because it was all public knowledge well in advance, but some political operatives began tweeting about it at the time I got the nomination uh, in July. So you know, it was clearly a politically motivated smear, uh, and it's kind of been waxing and waning for two years, three years, and I'm really grateful to have a chance to discuss this publicly. It's not about me, you know. I'm, I'm like a, a, an incidental um, factoid here in a mountain of information uh, and far greater concerns than the smear campaign against me is what this says about who's controlling U.S. foreign policy, censorship, um, and uh, manipulation of the U.S. public. Yes, you know, Russians are uh, probing our vulnerabilities constantly in all areas, as we are doing to them, as most capable democracies and countries are doing to each other. And you can just take a look at the Oxford University's um, um, uh, reports. They have a whole series of reports on this, which are, are very good and put the whole thing into perspective. The um, Senate Intelligence Committee reports, you know, like the information presented to the Mueller committee, you know, it looks at one particular window and it blows 
it, it's like, oh, I'm shocked, 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 you know, shocked, shocked, shocked that, that there are uh, manipulative Russian uh, messages out there. Oh, shock, you know. Mm-hmm. The reality is this, is this is what the Internet looks like. This is what social media looks like. By any realistic measure, Russia's interference in social media, media as in the election, is really pretty small change compared to the real sources of interference. So just to, um, uh, you know, put out um, a, uh, to underscore that point first about social media, the U.S. budget, well, let me say first, the entire Russian budget for social media interference, um, you know, adventures, whatever you call it, is $12 million per year. The U.S. budget is more like $200 million per year and perhaps much greater than that, but that's what's been specifically identified. Israel's is $100 million, you know. So we're the big players here. Russia's kind of a big player. And yeah, no doubt they're probing our social media. Whether it's official or unofficial, I think, isn't clear at this point. But yeah, there's a lot of nefarious um, uh, att- adventures going on out there not even to call it adventures I don't mean to minimize it there's nefarious stuff but we're very much a part of that and in fact you know the rules we used to be protected here in the US we used to be protected at least from propaganda on the part of our own government those protections were repealed in 2013 Mm. and you know what is that how much of that 200 million dollar social media budget you know is going to the lights likes of uh, Clint Watts you know and his organization he was a former military propagandist trying to propagandize the Middle East you know to a huge budget and then now he's kind of cashing in as a private contractor to provide these tools no doubt you know to the US government the Atlantic Council who knows you know who's all in on this we don't exactly know but there's a lot of countercurrents out there on 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 social media and in legacy media we need to be skeptical consumers and we need to hear all points of view regrettably the really thoughtful and broad point of view like that you represent or Aaron Mate or Glenn Greenwald or Max Blumenthal uh, and others with uh, you know particularly with the um, Gray Zone project uh, and consortium um, news and so on. People who are really looking at this more broadly, they're being completely suppressed here, which again ties us back to why I'm glad, why Hillary Clinton has done us such a favor to lift the veil on this cancer of McCarthyism that's really, um, you know, it's destabilizing our foreign policy. It is um, interfering with our press freedoms and our communications here at home and this is dangerous at a time when the military budget is consuming 60% of our discretionary budget 60% and growing supported by Democrats uh, as well as Republicans you know when we are um, bombing seven countries and on the verge of many more when we have special operations in something like 70 or 80 countries right now around the world um, we are the empire, you know, like the world has never seen. This has a huge cost, not only to our financial budget, but to our democracy, to our uh, very survival into the 21st century. So thank you, Hillary Clinton, for enabling a greater public discussion of this very critical and timely problem. I'd like to, I'd like to ask you, because this phrase really 
grates at me, this sowing chaos, sowing <laughs> discord. Because, I don't know, I'm just a very common sense person. I covered the campaign in 2016. You and I have spoken about it quite a bit. And, you know, I was in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Ohio. And, and just little markers that at the time you, you think about it. Oh, I don't really see any Clinton lawn signs. I see a lot of Trump signage all over the place. Oh, when I go to Hillary Clinton events at colleges, it's mostly older people. They're not getting many students out. You know, mm-hmm. the, these things that add up to show in, an, an enthusiasm gap have nothing to do with a foreign country. So it's not even quantifiable. You know, mm-hmm. Aaron Matte has spoken about this, I think, very uh, brilliantly. You know, there's like memes of Jesus uh, from fake Russian pages and things like that. It's not even quantifiable. There's no way to even quantify whether things somebody sees on social media has any influence on uh, voting behavior. But one thing that does is if your job got sent to Mexico or China or your plant has been closed down or your YMCA has been closed down. I'd like to ask you, because to me, this sowing chaos nonsense, which is part of that McCarthyism, is really just a deflection from from the main issue, a, a, a phony populist, in my view, and now we're seeing you know a, a growing fascist, conned a lot of people into thinking he was the everyman speaking for them. Exactly. And why were people vulnerable to that kind of demagoguery? You know, this is exactly the demagoguery from Trump, you know, his his false populism. This is, you know, this is a, a, a classic textbook example of how fascism takes hold. It's always in the presence, not always, but, you know, usually in the in the face of incredible economic and social um, despair. We got that despair right now, big time, you know, whether you're looking at the economic hardships where, you know, by any real measure, almost half of Americans are in or near poverty, are extremely insecure about their economic status if they're not already uh, downwardly mobile. Half of Americans basically don't have access to health care, either they can't afford it at all or they can't afford to use it. Uh, you know, an entire generation of young people and not so young people are held hostage by unpayable student debt. You know, we've got a real crisis on our hands, you know, and um, mortality is going way up among those people who are being hit hard economically. And we've got an epidemic of opioid use and drug overdoses and and depression and suicides. You know, it's no secret that we are um, in very dark times. And it's also no secret that that's been you know, brought to us courtesy of both uh, political parties, mainstream parties that are serving the economic elite. So, you know, Trump was able to play on that um, at the, on that outrage uh, most recently against Barack Obama for having bailed out the banks and not the six or seven million homeowners who were basically cheated out of their homes. So there was in there still is incredible outrage. The Wall Street Journal had a poll about a month ago showing that it's 70% who aren't just, quote, fed up. They are uh, self-described as, um, you know, as angry at the bipartisan political system for screwing them. So, you know, it's like, like John Kennedy's saying comes to mind that those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. You know, we are a pressure cooker that is um, getting ready to explode. And what the strategy of the 
imperialists, you know, the oligarchs, um, the militarists, uh, the proponents of empire. Their strategy is to shut down on these uh, basic democratic uh, vehicles for discussion, for uh, democratic debate, and for change. They're trying to block political change because they are very afraid that their track record is catching up with them and that they're going to be booted out the minute people have a choice. And this is why, I mean, this is why I think, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't just leave this at Tulsi Gabbard. You know, she needed to smear me too to say, if you, you know, if you go to a third party or if you even support a third party, we're coming after you. You know, be very afraid of um, exercising your political freedom. Be very afraid. And, uh, you know, we see this playing out all over the place. You know, not only the complicity of the mainstream media, but in just everyday conversations. You know, people who haven't locked into the Trump camp are kind of lost at sea right now. They don't know what to do. They're terrified. They don't like where the mainstream political system and the Democrats are going, but they cling to this kind of Santa Claus hope of change inside the Democratic Party. And I say Santa Claus hope because I personally find it impossible to suspend disbelief. After almost a century of this you know, constant betrayal of progressive saviors who are always held up from Henry Wallace during the Second World War to Jesse Jackson to Bernie Sanders. We have progressive saviors who are allowed to be seen and heard, but then they get smacked down. This is kind of, this is the game plan here, folks. You know, how many times do we have to go through it and fail to recognize we need to start organizing on firm ground that they can't just pull out from under us every election. So people are scared. They're very scared because we're in this bipartisan system, you know, this lesser evil voting system that um, makes you worry, will my vote have unintended consequences? Now, it was clear in 2016, people who voted for me were not otherwise going to come out and vote. They weren't taken away from anybody. But more to the point, there were 100 million people who wouldn't vote at all. 100 million who are disproportionately black, brown, millennial, and poor. You know, did Russia get to all of them and tell them, you know, not to vote? I don't think so. You know, what an insult. People are acting, you know, on their own deeply felt experience and hungering for something else, like that Wall Street Journal poll told us. 70%, you know, are angry at the political system that has thrown them under the bus. So what does the political system do? It tries to shut down all other options by essentially equating progressives with Trump. And the solution here, I just want to put it on the table because this isn't so complicated. This isn't rocket science. The state of Maine has already passed ranked choice voting. Even if you're kind of, even if you share Hillary Clinton's paranoia that the Russians are around every corner, well, this is a great way to disrupt any evil foreigner's uh, secret plan to co-opt a presidential candidate, um, a progressive presidential candidate, and split the Democrats' vote, so-called. That can't happen under ranked choice voting. It makes vote splitting impossible. It lets you rank your choices. If your first choice loses, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice. There's going to be no spoiling of the vote, no unintended consequences. So even the um, Russia baiters 
should be out there now pounding the pavement for ranked choice voting. If we bailed out Wall Street to the tune of almost a trillion dollars at the time of the crash, um, almost a trillion dollars over the course of what, three or four days? Could we not make a critical patch to our voting system over the course of the next month? This could happen right now. Voting machines are still being purchased, um, which is a whole other story, but we're trying to get good, unhackable voting machines that use paper ballots. So we can, the systems are just now coming online. It's not too late to introduce ranked choice voting like Maine has done. And it's really interesting to look at their election where there's a wonderful green um, peace advocate running against Susan Collins in the Senate race for Susan Collins' seat. It's like a three, four, or might even be a five-way race. There's some independents, but Maine has elected independents before. Their other senator is nominally an independent right now, Angus King. So this, um, you know, the peace candidate has a real fighting chance. She's been treated, she's being treated very seriously by the media. And it's a little case study in what would happen if we actually liberated our votes, if we actually expanded our political freedom to the freedom we should have to be able to lead with our values. Democracy needs a moral compass. If we can't bring that into our elections, when do we have it? You know, so we can do that. And I think it's, uh, you know, thank you, Hillary Clinton, for enabling us to have this conversation publicly. And uh, I want to, I mean, obviously you're not Tulsi Gabbard, but let's call call it what it is. I mean, she was a whistleblower against the DNC in 2016. She basically, you know, resigned and uh, exposed that they were basically in the tank for Hillary Clinton. Uh, she's a sitting veteran. You know, it seems that the Democrats and the Republicans bow down to, to military service unless you're a veteran who says, let's get out of these wars. Um, and her main sin, it seems, as as a congressperson going over uh, as part of a coalition uh, to speak with uh, a brutal dictator, just like American congressmen and leaders have done time and time again, including, you know, the patron saint, John McCain, who has gone around the world and palled, uh, you know, not with us anymore, but you know, spoken with brutal dictators and stood on stage with neo-Nazis. Nobody has a problem with that. So so why is it that, in your view, uh, that Tulsi, who obviously there's been a concerted effort, I mean, she was the most searched candidate, uh, I believe, in several of the debates when you look at Google, and then her campaign was being prevented from uh, posting ads through YouTube and Google. I mean, it seems like when, whenever there was interest in, in this anti-war message, in learning about what does ending regime change mean, because most non-political junkies don't even know what that means, there was interest in her and the media pounced uh, against her. Yes. And, you know, even Hillary Clinton's attack was preceded by an attack, as I understand, in the New York Times, which essentially, you know, sort of uh, road-tested um, the same notion, you know, so she is very much, I think, in the position I was in in 2016, where there were just outrageous smears uh, raised against me, like the recount, for example, there was a real effort made. And this was actually a part of the Senate Intelligence Committee when they were uh, investigating me, part of the reason was for the recount. Now, any rational thinking would tell you that a recount is a way to verify the uh, accuracy and the security of the vote. Anyone concerned about Russian interference, you know, um, should have been all behind that recount. Yet I was being accused of launching the recount 
as a uh, as a campaign to undermine confidence in American elections. It's exactly the opposite. You know, you can't create confidence by sweeping suspicions under the rug. Daylight, you know, is the best disinfectant. And it was really important. And in fact, the recount continues. We have several ongoing lawsuits. And I am, you know, I'm constantly attacked on social media for why didn't I redistribute that money? You know, and I had um, stated very early on when we had no idea that the recount was going to go on for three years, you know, little did I know what I was signing up for. Um, but it is. And we have a very large team of attorneys who have been involved in two states. It's still ongoing in two out of the three states. So, you know, just to make the point, these smears are outrageous. They're very politically motivated. And there is no basis for them, you know. Um, is this libel? You know, uh, I don't know if it meets the definition of that. But it's, as you say, to simply smear Tulsi because she went to talk to, um, you know, to a political figure. Yes, a brutal dictator, but a brutal dictator that we are very involved in uh, a conflict with. As John Kennedy said, we must not negotiate out of fear but we must not fear to negotiate. Just because you talk to somebody doesn't mean they're your ally. You've got to talk to your adversaries. And in the case of Russia, you know, it's like, yeah, on steroids, yeah, we need to talk to them. We've got 2,000 nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert pointed at each other, just as our nuclear treaties are basically being undermined by actions on both sides. But, you know, uh, we have played a very large role uh, beginning with George Bush um, withdrawing from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which is really sort of the, the basic framework for uh, the other treaties as well. So we need to talk to Russians, we need to talk to uh, Syria, and bombs and missiles should not be our first reflex. It should be our absolute last, as international law tells us. That's what we do when we are imminently threatened. Otherwise, this goes to the UN Security Council. We are not at liberty to just bomb people we don't like or to just change regimes that we don't like, even if we um, think that they're undemocratic. Sorry about that. That is not our, that's not our role, you know, and that's not our capacity. And by the way, it doesn't seem like we have a problem with the brutal dictator in Saudi Arabia uh, when he was uh, murdering uh, and starving all of Yemen. Uh, we don't have a problem with the brutal dictator in Colombia as they assassinate journalists and political dissidents. Uh, there's plenty of brutal dictators that we're just fine with because they're good for our business interests. But we're yeah, I'm sorry, finish your, finish your thought. But, you know, we're aghast uh, at Assad. I'm not, I'm not saying people shouldn't. Uh, be against Assad, but it's this selective humanitarianism of uh, the neoliberal establishment. And, you know, for example, we uh, everybody's upset that Trump moved troops, uh, at, you know, shifted them out of northern Syria, leaving the Kurds to be attacked. Well, why, why isn't it that same fervor for the people in Yemen or, or elsewhere? Uh, it, it just there's no moral or, or there's no moral consistency here. And it's baffling. Very baffling and very upsetting as the world continues to explode around us. You know, um, there is blowback, you know, as um, Max Blumenthal and others at Gray Zone, you know, they did a whole piece recently about blowback 
I think from Ukraine, actually, you know, and about our, you know, which is another kind of cesspool that begs for some daylight. You know, there's all kinds of um, just very disturbing foreign policy aspects to Ukraine, starting especially in 2014 with the um, U.S.-supported coup. Not that whatever his name was was a good guy, but, you know, we, we're not in the business of overthrowing people who aren't good guys, you know, and they pointed out that there have now been several cases just barely intercepted by the FBI of total whack jobs, you know, uh, right-wing fascist whack jobs, Americans who've gone over to Ukraine to be trained by the Azov Battalion, which is this band of fascists that we have supported. U.S. foreign policy has basically supported them. So our support for right-wing dictators uh, is blowing back at us right now, but the blowback could be a whole lot bigger. You know, I mean, 9-11 was, you know, has to be viewed in part as blowback mm. as well, you know, for, you know, with with the vast majority of the uh, terrorists coming from Saudi Arabia, you know, connected to Al-Qaeda, which had been basically mobilized against the U.S. because we had troops in their country, you know, it is not, um, you don't want to do that unless there's very good reason for it uh, and is done in a way that is, um, you know, uh, politically and socially beneficial for the people of that country too. So yeah, it's, we've been making deals with the devil here and the devil is coming home to roost in all kinds of ways. So even if only out of our own self-interest, even if you can't, you know, uh, let your heart beat, you know, for a broader purpose here, even if your heart is stone cold and you're only going to um, kind of create a fortress around yourself. Well, even people of that mindset really need to pay attention here. Our foreign policy badly needs to be put back on a, um, on a just and ethical footing. Right now, it's being driven by war contractors and by the, you know, the Northrop Grumman's and, and the Raytheon's, you know, who's the head of our Department of Defense now, a former Raytheon lobbyist? Mm. Um, who was the special envoy to Ukraine during the, uh, the, the infamous phone call? A lobbyist working for a lobbying company representing um, Raytheon. While a $49 million contract was signed and promoted by this special envoy, the Raytheon lobbyist, while he's still working for them, this $49 million contract gets signed to sell uh, weapons. You know, we are making a lot of money for the defense industry by seeding conflict and, and weaponizing small conflicts all over the world. It's going up in flames right now, and those flames are taking us down. So, you know, it's it's time, you know, thank you, Hillary Clinton, for uh, giving us a window into a broader discussion that's been begging to happen about this. And uh, I'd like to quickly segue, uh, I don't know if you saw before we started, uh, Julian Assange uh, spoke uh, at a uh, extradition hearing uh, in front of uh, a UK court magistrate. Uh, from all the reports, he was not cognitively well, uh, was struggling uh, it, the direct quote uh, from him uh, when asked if he understood events in court, he said, quote, not really. I can't think properly. Quote, I don't understand how this is equitable. 
this superpower, had 10 years to prepare for this case, and I can't access my writings. It's very difficult where I am to do anything, but these people have unlimited resources. He also went on to say, they are saying journalists and whistleblowers are enemy of the people. They have unfair advantages dealing with documents, and uh, they, the, they know the interior of my life with my psychologist. They steal my children's DNA. This is not equitable what is happening here. Uh, and also reports said he is very, very thin. Um, so the judge denied uh, the Assange lawyer's request to delay the extradition hearing. Uh, the Assange side citing new evidence, including that he was being spied on <laughs> in that embassy. Um, you know, I, I basically look at this as, as the, the Assange is a human being. You, seven years of this and now this... Uh, by all intents and purposes, psychological torture uh, in this British jail. He's been at the hospital wing uh, for a long time. And it just looks like the UK through the US with the help of um, Ecuador is rubber stamping his extradition. And whatever comes after that is not going to be good either. Um, What are your thoughts now that uh, it seems like he's obviously feeling the effects of this? So I, I didn't see that uh, news report, um, and I would love to uh, have a whole conversation about this. Um, you know, as a medical doctor, I've had really serious concerns uh, since he went to the uh, high security prison, uh, Belmore, whatever it's called, Belfour Prison, um, where he, you know, the guy hasn't had access to sunlight in seven years, okay? That's vitamin D. You get denied vitamin D for seven years. You know, even if you're taking the um, uh, vitamin, uh, it's not, it doesn't do what sunlight does. So this is extremely dangerous. And it's not inconceivable that all kinds of things could be going on just physically with his health. It's uh, the UN Rapporteur on Human Rights, I believe, has really gone to bat uh, for Julian Assange. And of course, that's as part of this era of McCarthyism and the suppression of real important critical vital this um, discussion you know this has been buried it is a real threat you know not only to basic human rights what's going on with Julian Assange but also to just basic freedoms and freedom of the press you know he's being attacked uh, not only as a whistleblower, but you know, but also as a publisher, he's had the Espionage Act thrown at him, which is absolutely outrageous. Um, you know, there's there are just any number of smear campaigns concocted against him, which the UN Rapporteur looked into. He said, you know, I was not an Assange supporter at all because of what I'd seen about him and heard about him. But as I began to investigate this case. You know, I am just flabbergasted. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's basically what he said, that he has never seen a single person so um, uh, persecuted. He said, Assange is not not being prosecuted. He's being persecuted by at least five democracies here who have essentially ganged up on him, and that includes Sweden Mm. and their effort um, to basically um, push him into a trap, uh, enabling him, you know, they had told him it was okay for him to leave Sweden, uh, when he had been accused uh, in a way that uh, is actually very unjust. If you look at the details, he was very unjustly accused of rape. Um, and uh, in Swedish law, that means your condom burst. You know, hmm. It doesn't mean what it means here. This is very different. He was really being framed. Um, and 
uh, he was tricked into leaving. They told him, oh, it's okay for you to go back to England. And then the minute they did, they, the minute he left with their permission, they basically rang the terrorist alert and got him uh, basically arrested at that point. And the whole situation with him being, uh, you know, having whatever it was, skipped out on bail or something when he mm -hmm. was first charged with rape, um, and he skipped out on his bail, that is, in, under English law, actually a very small offense. And the largest possible punishment for that is supposed to be something like two or four weeks mm -hmm. in jail. And even that is the exception that's never, um, you know, actually enacted, never used. So, I mean, he's being persecuted on many fronts here. It's involved many governments. Uh, his health has been absolutely uh, under assault for seven years. Who knows what he's been able to eat even, you know, because he hasn't been able to go out and purchase food himself. So what kind of nutrition is he getting? I mean, there there's just a whole litany of um, medical problems that he could have right now related to his confinement. And it's incredible that he's still alive and that he can think at all well enough to uh, make the comments that he did. But this makes a complete mockery of our system of justice that this is allowed to go on. And I think it's only because it's kept out of public view that this is happening. I think if the American people really saw what was going on here, especially in this context now of the new McCarthyism, I think there would be absolute um, outrage that this is happening and we could stop this. Hmm. And my last question, uh, you look at the current landscape uh, of the Democratic primary, obviously Bernie had a health scare, just came back with a pretty big show of force. Uh, but the media, I mean, you look back at 2007, 2008, the love fest for Obama. Uh, I think what's what you've seen from Senator Warren, uh, who obviously is from Massachusetts, where you're from, uh, is very similar to that from uh, Obama's first campaign. Uh, it seems like the media, you know, is anointing her and uh, and a lot of people that shouldn't on paper be comfortable with her. Wall Street lobbyists, this and that. They seem more comfortable with her than, than Bernie Sanders. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Because it seems like in 2016 we saw the Hillary coronation. Uh, and we have definitely seen the propping up of Elizabeth Warren from a lot of the folks in that same camp. Yes. I, you know, I think it's still too soon to say for sure. And, and Michael Bloomberg now is talking about coming in to, okay. uh, yeah, to replace our friend Joe Biden. You know, to me, the process is very corrupt. Um, and it's not going to get fixed inside of the corrupt parties is my feeling about it, which is why I don't spend a lot of time and energy um, participating in the, you know, in the, in the Santa Claus discussion. You know, you have to suspend disbelief to think that this is going to be different from what's gone on for the last 80 years inside the Democratic Party. I think they're going to do the best they can to fool people. And Elizabeth Warren, you know, is looking like she would really fill the Obama bill. You know, she appears to be um, very progressive, but if you look closely, you have a lot of reasons to worry. Um, you know, uh, especially given her, I mean, given a whole lot of things. Um, and that could be the subject of another discussion, but it doesn't inspire my confidence at all. And, you know, can she be Donald Trump? I don't know. I just worry that 
Donald Trump is an expression of the corruption and the dysfunction of the bipartisan system and its refusal to actually um, allow political freedom. You know, the lesser evil system of voting is a, um, you know, it is a blow against political freedom. We need political freedom. We need ranked choice voting. And I'm sort of putting most of my energy into trying to um, fix this incredibly diseased political system. It is a it's a two-party tailspin where the public is re is reacting against the latest worst predator in the Oval Office. And that's what happens under two-party politics. So it's really important that we be able to open that up. Ranked choice voting does that. It's a no-lose proposition, and it's basically cost-free. But they don't want you to know about it, and they don't want you to do it. I encourage people to look at uh, Lisa for Maine. That's lisaformaine.org, just to see an example of you know where an anti-war candidate is getting a real um, you know uh, a real word uh, has a real fighting chance in a race and in a highly contested um, Senate uh, position. We need that all over the country. Then we can have a reasonable uh, Democratic race, uh, I should say presidential race. And until then, I'm not hopeful um, one way or the other. I think they're going to do what they've always done. They will find a way to push back against a uh, progressive, a real progressive inside the Democratic Party. And we are too close now to climate change catastrophe to nuclear conflagration uh, to uh, the takeover of fascism. We are too close to all that to allow this cycle to be endlessly repeated. And to, end, to end on a more hopeful note, I just was curious your thoughts, because you see globally three million people uh, just participated in the climate strike a couple weeks ago. Uh, hundreds of thousands in the United States alone, and mostly young people. I mean, there was a whole lot of young people out there. Does that give you hope uh, for maybe a third party? Because young people aren't married to the Democratic Party or Republican Party, and they're certainly not buying uh, the same old, same old politics that you and I have been speaking about. They definitely are not. And I don't want to convey that I am, like, not hopeful. I'm extremely hopeful, to tell you the truth, because, um, you know, in, for one, because we're actually having this discussion now that has never been allowed before, at least not in my, you know, recent political lifetime. And because there is a rebellion going on in full swing, you know, it's not only the uh, student um, school strike for the climate, it's Extinction Rebellion, it's the labor strikes that are going on now, you know, that have lied, gone dormant, you know, for, for decades, they're back full force. And the rank and file is not buying the... Um, you know, politics as usual uh, in the way that they used to. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's why to my mind, ranked choice voting, <laughs> I hate to keep harping on it, but it like, it allows all these things to come together. It allows us to get political and exercise power where all this discontent now is boiling over. Um, we can focus that. And, you know, that Wall Street Journal poll that said 70 percent, and this is staggering, are not just fed up, they're fighting angry. So I think it's time to get political and and let's make this happen. You know, we got to make hay while while we still can. Thank you so much for taking the time, uh, Dr. Jill Stein, uh, it, uh, who might be the, the most clumsy, terrible asset of Russia that I've ever seen, because in this interview, she clearly uh, showed that's preposterous. Uh, and thank you for your input on, on a lot of other important issues. Uh, thanks again.
Thank you. Always a pleasure, Jordan. Great. Hope you enjoyed that last video. Hop on over to statusquo.com where you can sign up for our email list and become a member for as low as five to ten dollars a month. Membership is how we grow. That's statusquo.com slash join. And remember, join our email list so we can grow the revolution with you.